Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Good morning. How's everybody doing? I want to welcome everyone here and everybody watching online as well. Are you guys ready for a challenging message today? Okay, if so, I want you to say yes. All right, just remember, you asked for it, okay? Uh-huh. By the end, you're going to be thinking, hey, can we get Wendy back up here? Or that guy Jason, I like him. Anybody but you. All right, brace yourselves. Let me begin with just a few light opening questions. How many of you plan on one day committing adultery, cheating on your spouse? Can I see a show of hands here? Oh, okay. Or, or how many of you plan on getting married, popping out a few kids, then going through a bitter, ugly divorce? Like, that's in the game plan. Yeah, that's what I thought. It's so fascinating to me because I sit up here and I ask that question, how many of you plan to do this? And nobody does. And yet, statistically, more than half of you, statistically speaking, more than half will do both. According to the statistics, well over half commit adultery and nearly half get divorced. See, you don't plan on doing these things. But it happens. Why is that? I think all sorts of answers are possible. One of them, I believe, is because society today does a horrible job at preparing people for marriage. In fact, I would argue that society does a much much better job at preparing people for divorce. Think about it. What dating has become today is really just a good preparation for divorce. Because it used to be there were things that were reserved for marriage. But now, the only difference between dating and marriage is a little ceremony that doesn't mean a lot to a whole lot of people, because when they're dating, they're doing the same things that married people used to do. Little things like, say, I love you, and I give you my heart, and and physical things like sleeping together, and sharing the same bed, sharing our bodies, you know, or sharing a sink with a toothbrush, living together, and so forth, right? And so basically, people play house, they pretend to be married, they do married things, and then when things go south... They just pick up that toothbrush and their broken hearts and leave. And essentially, they're practicing, in that moment, they're practicing divorce. And when they do that with two or three people or eight people or 22 people, right, is it any wonder that when the only difference between dating and marriage is a little ceremony that doesn't mean a lot, when things get tough, people just grab that toothbrush and move on somewhere else. So society has trained us well for divorce. And many of you who will be married or many of you who are married, you're going to hit rough spots. And when things get tough, I'm telling you, the conventional wisdom in our society today is grab that toothbrush and leave. And so what I want to do today is I want to share a story with you that is very painful and very beautiful all at the same time. And we're going to see that even when there is every ground for divorce, sometimes God calls us to something different. So this is the story of a couple named Hosea and Gomer. Everybody say Hosea. Okay, now everybody say Gomer. All right, Hosea is the man and Gomer is the unfortunate woman with that terrible name, okay? Anybody named Gomer here? I hope not, okay. It's almost as bad as Hagar. Okay, we're going to talk about her next week. Hagar is probably worse, but we're going to see in this marriage that there's every grounds for divorce, but God is going to call these people to something different. 
So let me give you the context here. This is 760 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. A guy by the name of King Jeroboam II was king over the northern kingdoms of Israel, and they were experiencing a time of unprecedented prosperity. Well, sadly, though, whenever there's economic increase, there's often moral and spiritual decrease, which is exactly what was going on here. And so God calls this prophet Hosea to confront the spiritual adultery, the vile sins of the people of this land. And I'll just tell you up front, this is a highly unusual story, all right? In Hosea 1, verses 2 to 3, God is going to ask this man to do something that in my mind is absolutely insane. Here we go. It says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, take to yourself, and you can say it in church, okay, work with me, ready? Take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. Okay, that word, Hebrew word, adulterous wife there, can also be translated as prostitute, harlot. So God is telling this young prophet to take this immoral woman as his wife. Why would God do that? Well, he says, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblame. Okay, this Deblame became popular when years later uh, Fantasy Island was famous and Tattoo would come out, remember? Say, de blame, de blame. I know, that was bad. Okay, that's... <laughs> Those of you under 40 are going, what is Fantasy Island? <laughs> don't worry about it. Just praise God you don't know. It's a good thing. That's just where my mind went. So he married Gomer, daughter of de blame, <clears throat> and, and she conceived and bore him a son. <laughs> Okay, pause here. Why? Okay, for, why in the world is God going to tell this budding young pastor to go marry a prostitute? This story, let's just be honest, is pretty difficult to stomach. And this story actually has layer upon layer upon layer to it. You know, the first layer is, is the very literal story of this prophet Hosea and an immoral woman, Gomer. But another layer, if you dig down, is a picture of God. Right, just like Hosea was loving this immoral woman, Gomer, so God is loving the immoral people, the Israelites. And still another layer is a picture that relates to us at a very deep level. It's the fact that God loves us in spite of our own rejection of him, in spite of our sinfulness. God continues to love us. So there's just layer upon layer in this disturbing and yet beautiful marriage story. And this morning, I want you to think about the various layers. Don't get just so caught up in the literalness of this story here because there's more to it. If you're single, maybe you think in terms of your relationship with God. If you're married, don't just think in terms of adultery because there are so many other things that can cause problems in marriage and tension and eventually separation and even divorce. But to make this story easy to understand, I want to put their marriage in the context of our day. Okay, if it was going on today, if these people were alive today, it would look something like this. You've got a girl with a very bad past, and this girl, she runs into this young pastor, and God tells the pastor, I want you to go marry this girl. Well, what do you think the pastor's thinking? Well, he's thinking, well, if God is leading me to do this, then it's bound to work out okay, right? Because God wouldn't lead me to do something unless it was going to work out fine, Right? And she's probably thinking, wow, a nice guy. He's, he's not just after one thing, and he's got a steady job. I like his family. Finally, a decent man likes me. So they get married, and they have all these hopes and dreams. You know, they go to Hawaii on their vacation, and while they're in Hawaii, they get a little happy. She gets pregnant, and 
So they're truly excited, and she gets a little poochy, and then, you know, yeah, that's a nice way of saying it. And then one, one day the baby kicks, right? And she's like, oh, my baby, I love this child. I love my life, right? And so they go to the doctor. They get the ultrasound. Is it a girl? Is it a boy? And there's a stem on the apple. All right, it's a boy. We know that, right? And now we got to come up with a name. Well, is it this? Is it that? Oh, I like it. No, no, no. That's an old boyfriend. Can't, can't name him that. She had a lot of old boyfriends, so that process took a while. But they, they paint the room blue. They got the baby shower. And finally, the baby is born. She looks down. It's like, oh, he's got your eyes. He's got your toes. And they're truly, truly excited. And they're looking forward to this great future together. Well, that's how it usually starts, right? But then life happens. Maybe in the same way that life has happened for you. You know, his ministry starts picking up. He's getting busier and busier and busier at church. And, you know, she's resentful because he's not spending enough time at home with the baby. And he doesn't know what to do. Doesn't know how to change poopy diapers. Doesn't want to do that. So he's ignoring that. And, and she's angry because he's not taking out the trash the way her dad did. And every woman knows it's the guy's job to take the garbage out, right? But, you know, his dad didn't do it. So he didn't know he was supposed to do that. And, and she's upset. And, you know, I mean, she's letting herself go. Her body isn't what it used to be because she was just pregnant. And she's got all these wacky hormones going on. So she's not very friendly. She's feeling trapped. And he's feeling neglected because she's not meeting his needs because he's not doing that. And it just swirls around, right? All these problems are building. And then one day, something happens. You know, maybe an old boyfriend friends her on Facebook. Or, or maybe. You know, she goes to the gym to get in shape. There's a cute trainer there who pays attention to her. Or she gets a part-time job because finances are tight, and, and he's really, really nice. You know, something happens, and this woman believes this lie, the most common misconception in marriages, I believe. It's a simple lie. It goes like this. What I'm missing is better than what I have. What I'm missing is better than what I have. I've got a pretty decent guy here, but he's not delivering everything I want. And what I want, he's not able to deliver. And so I'm going to look for something else. What does she do? Verse 5 of Hosea 2. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Although this guy offers me so much, there are a few things he doesn't offer me that someone else can. And so she does what people have done for centuries, she trades the 80 for the 20. One of the most common and foolish trades, the 80 for the 20. You say, well, what in the world are you talking about? Well, in any decent marriage, the other partner can meet about 80% of your expectations and needs. Like nobody, people, can meet 100%. It's physically impossible. You want to set someone up for failure, expect them to meet all of your needs and expectations. No one can. So he's delivering at about 80%, but there's 20% that he's incapable of delivering, and that's what she wants. And so she ends up trading the 80 for the 20 and ends up with far less than what she had in the first place. Now, I don't know what that 20% is that those other guys could offer. Maybe, maybe he listened to her or complimented her. Maybe he bought her gifts or you know, told her she was special. Maybe he just had more income, was able to provide more for her. You know, if you flip it around, in the man's world, it could be something like this. You know, there's this woman at work, and, man, she's so cool. She doesn't tear me down with her words, and she laughs at my corny jokes, and she likes to watch sports with me, and we just got so much in common. And let's just face it, she's more exciting than my wife. And so he trades the 80 for the 20. 
and ends up with far less than he had in the first place. People believe this lie that what I'm missing is better than what I have. And can I just be brutally honest with you for just a moment here? And before I get there, let me give a disclaimer. I recognize that this is not true in 100% of cases. I've done enough counseling. I realize that there are times when you've spent years and years and years, decades in counseling, seen dozens of counselors. You've done everything you can. I recognize that there are some times when the best and the worst option is divorce. I get that. I can accept that. But in my 30-plus years of marriage, I've seen this hundreds and hundreds of times. People trade the 80 for the 20. And I try to warn them and tell them they're due, but they just don't see it in the moment. They see things like, well, you, you know, we got so much more in common. You know, <laughs> we like this, to watch sports together, or we like to play golf together, or we, we like the same shows. We like to have forbidden sex, which, by the way, is impossible with your spouse because once you're married, it's not forbidden, forbidden anymore, right? But, but that just seems more exciting, right? And you see how there's this illusion going on. There's this bubble that's set up there. And I try to warn them, you're about to throw away what you've worked for for all these years. Yeah, 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 but we got so much more in common. And I'm like, really, are you sure about that? More than 10, 10, 10, 20, 30, 40 years of life history together, having children together? You know, whenever things look better on the other side of the fence, whenever the grass looks greener on the other side, it's time to water your own lawn so often. You know, if it looks better somewhere else, it's only because you can't smell the poop over there, all right? You're not close enough. You get close enough, I promise you, there's poop over there. What I'm missing is not better than what I have if I'll invest in what I have. And yet this is so, so common because you know what happens? Life happens. And we just get rolling and we start believing this lie that what I'm missing is better than what I have. That's what Gomer does. So she went out, she meets a couple of guys, she gets pregnant. She actually has several children, people. She has a daughter, a daughter named Lo-Ru-Hama. Lo-Ru-Hama. God told her husband to name the daughter Lo-Ru-Hama. You know what it means? Unpitied or unloved by the true father. These names were actually a reflection of what was going on in the heart of God. His pain, right? She goes out, finds another guy, has a son by this guy, and God says, name him Lo-Ami, which means no kin of mine, not related to me. You can hear the hurt in God, can't you? When his people are rejecting him over and over and over and over again. If you've ever been cheated on, you know that pain, right? God felt cheated on. God felt like these people are committing spiritual adultery against me. If you read through this book of Hosea, it's painful. It's painful to watch God hurt. And so here's what God does. And I could try to spin it and make it something it's not. But you know what God does? God gets angry and God gets jealous, which I would say he has every right to be because he's God and he wants our heart. In fact, let's take a minute here just to look at God's heart. Let's look at God's two responses to this spiritual adultery going on. Because quite honestly, there are some here today who are sinning grievously against God, and this is how that sin makes God feel. You need to know this. His first response is he has this very righteous anger. God says this in Hosea 2, 8 to 10. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain. Remember, God's the source of all blessings in life anyhow. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. 
I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. So you can hear his hurt, his jealousy. Because in the Old Testament, God says what? I am a jealous God. You can have no other gods before me. No idols. You'll worship me and me alone. Why? Because he's God. And he is worthy of that. And if you think, well, that sounds really selfish of God, you got to understand something. God knows his own goodness. Okay, God knows how good he is. And so he knows that when we reject that, who ends up getting hurt? We do. God doesn't want us to get hurt. And when we hurt, God hurts, and God gets angry, so he's begging people. He's like, come on, love me, worship me. And you can also, this undertone is going on here where you can hear God saying, you know what? You want to do life without me? Go for it. See how it works out. And I sense that God may do that with marriages today. You want to do marriage without me, without my word, without my presence? Try it out. See how it works, which is how so many people are living their marriages today, isn't it? But as you read through this, you also get this sense of possessiveness from God, don't you? Like, ain't nobody going to steal her from me. And what does he say? He says, no one will take her out of my hands. You know, if you've been betrayed and you're angry about that, you're a little ticked off, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That could be a righteous anger. Don't feel bad about that. It could be, you know what? We made this oath, this promise, you broke it, and I'm a little upset here. That's not always an unrighteous stance. In fact, that possessiveness could be a good thing. It's like saying, Satan, you're not stealing this marriage here. You think I'm going to roll over and go away like everyone else? No, 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 no. When I made that vow, I meant it, so I'm going to fight for this. But sadly, I think in our culture today, our culture teaches us to what? Just give up. Oh, no, it's, it's too hard. I'm just going to do what I've done 18 times before. I'm going to take my toothbrush, and I'm going to leave. And God might be saying, yeah, even though you have every grounds for divorce, it's not time to give up yet. Don't give up yet. So God responds initially with this righteous anger, but then there's a beautiful and sudden shift that happens in God's response. First, he's angry, and then boom, he has this second response. What is it? An unfailing love. Righteous anger and then unfailing love. Here's the shift in verses 14 to 15. God says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the what? <laughs> Say it. The desert. I'm going to lead her into this most dry place where there's nothing else for her to lean on but me. Nothing else for her to depend on but me. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. And I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. That word Achor in Hebrew, it means trouble. This literally means I will make this valley of trouble a door of hope. I will make all these troubles that you've been through, I will transform them and I will give you hope through those. You know, there are basically two ways to have a great marriage. You ready for this? You can choose which one you want. All right, way number one is to just do everything right. Okay, I promise you it'll work. Just don't sin, okay? Don't mess up. If you say, well, I don't know if I can. Okay, way number two is to walk through the valley of Achor together until you find that door of hope. So what does that mean? Well, it means you're not always going to do everything right. And again, don't just think in terms of adultery with your marriage, right? There are so many other things 
financial issues, kid issues, relational issues, personality conflicts, all these other things. And you know what's going to happen in marriage? You're going to mess up. You're going to sin. You're going to mistreat each other. You're going to reject each other. But then what do you do? You repent. You turn back to God. You cry together. You hug. You apologize. And then you let God chip away at those rough edges and conform your heart and mind to the heart and mind of Jesus. You walk through the valley of Acorn. When you get to the other side, when you've walked through it together, there's always a door of hope. God has a door of hope for you. You know, some of the best marriages that I know have walked through the valley of Acor in some serious ways. Yeah, rejection, betrayal, whatever it may be. But they've walked through that valley of Acor with God leading the way, and they found that door of hope. And some of you here this morning, I'm sure that some of you watching online even, that you're married, but you've kind of given up. And I want to challenge you to walk together with God through the valley of Acor until you find that door of hope. And I understand sometimes that other person is not going to walk with you. Well, then what do you do? Well, you have to decide that you're going to walk that path alone with your hand outstretched, waiting to accept your spouse's hand when they're willing to join you. But you don't let go of God. Now, as I said at the beginning, this is a troubling message. This is a difficult message to swallow. Because God is going to say the craziest thing to this man who's been nothing but faithful, to this man who's been nothing but betrayed by his wife. If you fast forward in the story, she's now left him. And what has he done? He's shown his love for her over and over and over and over again. And she's actually back out prostituting herself again. You can only imagine how horrible that would be. In fact, the text even implies she's got a pimp now, basically a manager. She is full on into this business of prostituting herself. And God gives this very challenging, very profound message to the, profound, to the, to the spouse who's betrayed here. And I'm just going to summarize it for you. It's basically this. Forgive and love her as I've forgiven and loved you. You know, in my mind, I'm saying, you know what? Blow that girl off. Are you kidding me? After all she's done, she had her chance. You tried. Let her go. God says something different. Look at Hosea 3.1. The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved, present tense. Did you get that? Though she is loved by another and is, present tense, an adulteress. I mean, can we pause for a moment and just ask the question, how in the world? Like, I'm in his shoes. How is that possible? I can't find that in my emotions. God says, here's how. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Love her as God is loving us right now, even though none of us here in this room deserve that. Even though we continue to chase after the idols of this world. Even though we continue to reject his goodness. Now, there are no guarantees, people, as to what she's going to do. There are no guarantees that it's not going to end up in divorce. You can do everything right, and there are no guarantees. We don't control the outcome, but God is still clear about what we're to do. Right? His message to the betrayed spouse is forgive and love as you've been forgiven and loved. Forgive and love as you've been forgiven and loved. Now, let me tell you what this does not mean. Okay, hear me on this. This does not mean you become a big old honking doormat, okay? It doesn't mean that if you choose to reconcile, you don't bring some new rules to the game. It doesn't mean that, for instance, if he's always looking at porn, that computer doesn't go away. You might move out. 
Okay, it doesn't mean that you don't make changes. What it means is no matter what he or she does, the other spouse, you're going to choose to do what's right. This is the hard part of the story because I promise you, when things get tough, most of your friends are going to be saying, dump them, break it off, get a divorce. And again, I'll reiterate, I'm not saying there's never a time for divorce. Sometimes that's the best of the worst options. I get that. But often I believe God is saying, don't give up yet. Don't give up yet. And again, please hear my heart up here. My goal is not to bring condemnation on those of you who are divorced because I know, I know, I know. I've counseled so many couples and you can do everything right and sometimes you go to counseling for years and and decades and you've been to dozens of counselors, you've tried everything and sometimes the best of the worst options is divorce and God sees that and he is not condemning you. But what I am saying is this, you don't give up without a fight. You don't give up without trying again to do what's right, to honor God. And I get that there is a lot of emotion around this particular topic. I totally understand that. And every once in a while, someone will come up to me and say, you know, you don't understand my situation, Pastor Brian. How could you? I mean, you're married to Wendy, so that's easy for you to say. Can I just be brutally honest with you this morning? No, of course I can, okay? (laughs) Not that stupid. Let's just say our marriage, like every marriage in the history of mankind from Adam and Eve, is not a cakewalk. First of all, she's got to live with me, all right? Yeah, I had an amen out at Sun City that was not very nice, but (laughs) thank you for not saying that. But it's true, right? Like every marriage, just because we don't have Hosea Gomer problems doesn't mean we haven't had issues. Are you kidding me? Financial issues, responsibility issues, taking care of the kids, who's going to do this issues, personality clash issues. We've been through the valley of Acre over and over and over again. But when you stay with it and God leads you, there's always a door of hope, people. There's a door of hope. Now, let me give you the end of the story. We're out of time here. God tells this prophet to pursue his immoral wife and, and to show love for her yet again. And this is amazing to me. He actually takes his money and he buys her out of prostitution. He pays the price for his own wife, which, by the way, is exactly what God did for us. The Bible says, while we were still prostituting ourselves against God, while we were still sinners, Jesus shed his blood to buy us back so that we could know his love. Now, we don't know how the marriage ended. There's no record of it. I have to think that because of his enormous love, because he showed that love and he purchased her out of her sin, how in the world could she ever walk away from him again? And the reason I think that way is because I know that when I think about what God has done for me, I know the response in my heart. Like, how in the world could I not offer my whole life back to him? I mean, the Father gave his only begotten son. Jesus gave his life for me. When you think about all that God has done for us, then you begin to understand, wow, I know why he wants my whole heart. I know why his heart breaks when I continue to chase after other things, commit spiritual adultery. When you see all that God has done for us, what other response can you have but to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Tough message? Well, just remember, you asked for it, okay? <laughs> Let's pray. Hmm. God, I just want to pray in this moment 
that you would do a work in us in a way that only you can. And I want to acknowledge right now, I know there are all sorts of layers of pain with this topic, different emotions and hurt and confusion. And my prayer for everybody here in this room is that there would not be a sense of guilt. But God, somehow there would be a sense of hope. And that we would fear nothing because you are with us. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, the valley of desperation, depression, rejection, struggling marriage, financial hardship, self-doubt, guilt, whatever it is. In all that, God, you are with us. And we just want to look to you and embrace you and follow you. God, teach us to put our faith in you, not in another person, not in our own ideas, not in our own ability to manipulate, get our desired outcome, but to put our faith in you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so next week, Jason's going to be up here, and he's going to talk about Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, so you won't want to miss it. You guys have a great week. (laughs)